Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today marks two years since the first episode of this podcast. It's been even longer than that since I first had the idea for American Epistles. I'm so grateful to everyone who encouraged me to take the plunge. I also appreciate my fellow history podcasters who, very early on, promoted the show, gave me technical advice, and gave very kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. I especially have to name Jerry Landry of Presidencies of the United States and Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, listeners. A little before Christmas, the show passed 4,000 downloads, which I know may not seem like much for two years, but it's about 3,990 listens more than I even dared to hope for, and I appreciate every single one. As I begin year three, I'm excited to learn about and share with you more stories and letters from our nation's history. All along, I've been intrigued by the idea that these writings can take us back in time to experience history with the people who lived through it. The so-called ordinary people weren't trying to make history, they were just living their lives. As you know, I share these letters as part of an overall story, for example, about the Great Migration or the West Virginia Mine Wars. Over the course of a series, we might hear from up to 50 different people, but only snippets of their lives. This year, we'll be able to follow some individuals much more closely. I'll continue doing the multi-part series as I have for the first two years of this show. Now I'll also be releasing short bi-weekly episodes devoted to the words of a single individual so we can experience weeks, months, or even years of each subject's life. For these special episodes, I'll start with some brief background information and then devote the rest of the time to the subject's words uninterrupted. The first person from the past that we'll walk with is Eleanor Rupert. We'll actually meet her in a few minutes, but first I want to tell you about another new thing for this year, which is my Patreon page. There are three support options, $1, $3, or $5 per month. Any size contribution is appreciated and helps pay for things like hosting fees and extra file storage. All of my friends who are willing to contribute at any level will have early access to the special bi-weekly episodes. In fact, the next episode of the Eleanor Rupert series is already available to everyone who signs up to support the show financially, so they don't have to wait until January 19th to hear it. If you would like to contribute, please go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support. And I also appreciate your support in the way of ratings at Apple Podcasts. Now, back to Eleanor Rupert. She was born Eleanor Pruitt in 1876. According to some sources, she was born in Chickasaw Nation, Indian Territory, in what is now Oklahoma. Others say she was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas. She had just a few years of grammar school at the Pierce Institute in Oklahoma. The school closed in 1889, but Eleanor continued to teach herself by reading voraciously. By the time she was 17, Pruitt's father, mother, and stepfather had all died, leaving her to care for her younger siblings. When Pruitt was in her mid-twenties, she married a 48-year-old civil engineer named Harry Kramer Rupert. A few years later, 
Either Harry and Eleanor divorced, or Harry died in a railroad accident. But their daughter, Jereen, was born February 1906. That year, Eleanor started nurses' training, and she also started writing for the Kansas City Star. The newspaper then gave her an opportunity to write about cliff dwellings in the Southwest. Due to health problems, these plans fell through. In the fall, Eleanor Rupert moved to Denver and started working for Mrs. Juliet Coney, a widowed schoolteacher from Boston. Rupert earned $2 a week for her labors as a laundress and housekeeper. She also helped out at the Sunshine Rescue Mission's daycare nursery to pay for Jereen's childcare. She kept up her writing, though, and also found time to study for the civil service exam. Then it seemed that homesteading would provide the path to the better future that Eleanor sought for herself and her daughter. The Homestead Act gave tracts of land to male citizens, widows, single women, and immigrants who pledged to become citizens. On the advice of a priest at the rescue mission, Rupert started looking for a housekeeping job for a rancher, as that appeared a good step towards homesteading. Mrs. Coney agreed, and in March of 1909, Eleanor responded to an ad in the Denver Post seeking a housekeeper to help on the homestead of Henry Clyde Stewart, a Scottish widower. The job was in Sweetwater, Wyoming, near the Utah border. Rupert and Stewart first met for an interview in Denver. Rupert was hired, moved to Wyoming, and began a four-year correspondence with Mrs. Coney. These letters would eventually be published in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, and then in a book. The popularity of the letters surprised Rupert, who, as I said, had very little formal education. I'll share her letters in several 20-ish minute episodes, starting today. Again, they'll come out bi-weekly, but Patreon supporters can listen to the next episode as soon as you finish listening to this one. I'm reading two letters today. In the first letter, she uses the phrase, making love, which at that time meant to pay amorous attention, court, or woo. Also, when Eleanor quotes the Scottish Mr. Stewart, she writes his accent into the letter. I don't do a great job with the pronunciation, but I do try. And now, without any further ado, Ms. Eleanor Rupert. Burnt Fork, Wyoming, April 18th, 1909. Dear Mrs. Coney, Are you thinking I am lost like the babes in the wood? Well, I am not, and I am sure the robins would have the time of their lives getting leaves to cover me out here. I am way up close to the forest reserve of Utah, within half a mile of the line, 60 miles from the railroad. I was 24 hours on the train and two days on the stage. And oh, those two days. The snow was just beginning to melt and the mud was about the worst I have ever heard of. The first stage we tackled was just about as rickety as it very well could be, and I had to sit with the driver, who was a Mormon and so handsome that I was not a bit offended when he insisted on making love all the way, especially after he told me he was a widower Mormon. But of course, as I had no chaperone, I looked very fierce. Not that that was very difficult with the wind and mud as allies. And I told him my actual opinion of Mormons in general and particular. Meantime, my new employer, Mr. Stewart, sat upon a stack of baggage and was dreadfully concerned about something he calls his tookie, but I am unable to tell you what that is. The road, being so muddy, 
was full of ruts, and the stage acted as if it had the hiccups, and made us all talk as though we were affected in the same way. Once Mr. Stewart asked me if I did not think it a gay deer trip. I told him he could call it gay if he wanted to, but it didn't seem very hilarious to me. Every time the stage struck a rock or a rut, Mr. Stewart would hoot until I began to wish we would come to a hollow tree or a hole in the ground so he could go in with the rest of the owls. At last we arrived and everything is just lovely for me. I have a very, very comfortable situation and Mr. Stewart is absolutely no trouble. For as soon as he has his meals, he retires to his room and plays on his bagpipe, only he calls it his bug peep. It is the Campbells are coming, without variations, at intervals, all day long, and from seven till eleven at night. Sometimes I wish they would make haste and get here. There is a saddle horse, especially for me, and a little shotgun with which I am to kill sage chickens. We are between two trout streams, so you can think of me as being happy when the snow is through melting and the water gets clear. We have the finest flock of Plymouth Rocks and get so many nice eggs. It sure seems fine to have all the cream I want after town experiences. Jereen is making good use of all the good things we are having. She rides the pony to water every day. I have not filed on my land yet because the snow is 15 feet deep on it and I think I would rather see what I am getting. So we'll wait till summer. They have just three seasons here, winter and July and August. We are to plant our garden the last of May. When it is so I can get around, I will see about land and find out all I can and tell you. I think this letter is about to reach 32ndly, so I will send you my sincerest love and quit tiring you. Please write me when you have time. Sincerely yours, Eleanor Rupert. May 24th, 1909. Dear, dear Mrs. Coney, Well, I have filed on my land and am now a bloated landowner. I waited a long time to even see land in the reserve, and the snow is yet too deep. So I thought that, as they have but three months of summer and spring together, and as I wanted the land for a ranch anyway, perhaps I had better stay in the valley. So I have filed adjoining Mr. Stewart, and I am well pleased. I have a grove of twelve swamp pines on my place, and I am going to build my house there. I thought it would be very romantic to live on the peaks amid the whispering pines, but I reckon it would be powerfully uncomfortable also, and I guess my twelve can whisper enough for me. And a dandy thing is, I have all the nice snow water I want. A small stream runs right through the center of my land, and I am quite near wood. A neighbor and his daughter were going to Green River, the county seat, and said I might go along, so I did, as I could file there as well as at the land office. And oh, that trip! I had more fun to the square inch than Mark Twain or Samantha Allen ever provoked. It took us a whole week to go and come. We camped out, of course, for in the whole sixty miles there was but one house, and going in that direction there is not a tree to be seen, nothing but sage, sand, and sheep. About noon the first day, out we came near a sheep wagon, and stalking along ahead of us was a lanky fellow, a herder, going home for dinner. Suddenly it seemed to me I should starve if I had to wait until we got where we had planned to stop for dinner, so I called out to the man, 
Little Bo Peep, have you anything to eat? If you have, we'd like to find it. And he answered, As soon as I am able, it shall be on the table, if you'll but trouble to get behind it. Shades of Shakespeare, Songs of David, the Shepherd Poet. What do you think of us? Well, we got behind it, and a more delicious it I have never tasted. Such coffee, and out of such a pot. I promised Bo Peep that I would send him a crook with pink ribbons on it, but I suspect he thinks I am a crook without the ribbons. The sagebrush is so short in some places that it is not large enough to make a fire, so we had to drive until quite late before we camped that night. After driving all day over what seemed a level desert of sand, we came about sundown to a beautiful canyon down which we had to drive for a couple of miles before we could cross. In the canyon, the shadows had already fallen, but when we looked up, we could see the last shafts of sunlight on the tops of the great bare buttes. Suddenly, a great wolf started from somewhere and galloped along the edge of the canyon, outlined black and clear by the setting sun. His curiosity overcame him at last, so he sat down and waited to see what manner of beast we were. I reckon he was disappointed, for he howled most dismally. I thought of Jack London's The Wolf. After we quitted the canyon, I saw the most beautiful sight. It seemed as if we were driving through a golden haze. The violet shadows were creeping up between the hills, while away back of us the snow-capped peaks were catching the sun's last rays. On every side of us stretched the poor, hopeless desert, the sage grim and determined to live in spite of starvation, and the great, bare, desolate buttes. The beautiful colors turned to amber and rose, and then to the general tone, dull gray. Then we stopped to camp, and such a scurrying around to gather brush for the fire and to get supper. Everything tasted so good. Jereen ate like a man. Then we raised the wagon tongue and spread the wagon sheet over it and made a bedroom for us women. We made our beds on the warm, soft sand and went to bed. It was too beautiful a night to sleep, so I put my head out to look and to think. I saw the moon come up and hang for a while over the mountain as if it were discouraged with the prospect, and the big white stars flirted shamelessly with the hills. I saw a coyote come trotting along and felt sorry for him, having to hunt food in so barren a place. But when presently I heard the whir of wings, I felt sorry for the sage chickens he had disturbed. At length a cloud came up and I went to sleep, and next morning was covered with several inches of snow. It didn't hurt us a bit, but while I was struggling with stubborn corsets and shoes, I communed with myself, after the manner of prodigals, and said, How much better that I were down in Denver, even at Mrs. Coney's, digging with a skewer into the corners seeking dirt which might be there, yea, even eating codfish, than that I should perish on this desert of imagination. So I turned the current of my imagination and fancied that I was at home before the fireplace, and that the backlog was about to roll down. My fancy was in such good working trim that before I knew it, I kicked the wagon wheel, and I certainly got as warm as the most sought scientist that ever read Mrs. Eddy could possibly wish. After two more such days, I arrived. When I went up to the office where I was to file, the door was open, and the most taciturn old man sat before a desk. I hesitated at the door, but he never let on. 
I coughed, yet no sign but a deeper scowl. I stepped in and modestly kicked over a chair. He whirled around like I had shot him. Well, he interrogated. I said, I am powerful glad of it. I was afraid you were sick. You looked in such pain. He looked at me a minute, then grinned and said he thought I was a book agent. Fancy me, a fat, comfortable widow trying to sell books. Well, I filed and came home. If you will believe me, the Scot was glad to see me and didn't herald the Campbells for two hours after I got home. I'll tell you, it is mighty seldom that anyone's so much appreciated. No, we have no rural delivery. It is two miles to the office, but I go whenever I like. It is really the jolliest kind of fun to gallop down. We are sixty miles from the railroad, but when we want anything, we send by the mail carrier for it, only there is nothing to get. I know this is an inexcusably long letter, but it is snowing so hard, and you know how I like to talk. I am sure Jereen will enjoy the cards, and we will be glad to get them. Many things that are a comfort to us out here came from dear Mrs. Name redacted. Baby has the rabbit you gave her last Easter a year ago. In Denver, I was afraid my baby would grow up devoid of imagination. Like all the kindergartners, she depended on others to amuse her. I was very sorry about it, for my castles in Spain have been real homes to me. But there is no fear. She has a block of wood she found in the blacksmith shop, which she calls her dear baby. A spoke out of a wagon wheel is little Margaret, and a barrel stave is bad little Johnny. Well, I must quit writing before you vote me a nuisance. With lots of love to you, your sincere friend, Eleanor Rupert. The letters of Eleanor Pruitt Rupert are in the public domain. The music for this show is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.